This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Jackie Cameron. Welcome to episode 78 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we interview Professor Lucille Bloomberg, one of South Africa's leading specialists on infectious diseases. Professor Bloomberg is the head of the Epidemiology Division and Deputy Director of the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. We also hear the details about Sweden's controversial lockdown strategy and where it has gone right and wrong in fighting COVID-19. And our partner, the Wall Street Journal, shares an in-depth report on COVID-19 patterns and challenges across the African continent. First, the COVID-19 news making the headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. More than 25.5 million people have tested positive for COVID-19 around the world. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Centre. Just under 852,000 people are reported as having died of COVID-19. In South Africa, as of Monday, a cumulative total of 627,041 confirmed COVID-19 cases were recorded, with 1,985 new cases. The official number of COVID-19-related deaths in South Africa has reached just under 14,200. Recoveries now stand at 540,923, which the government says translates to a recovery rate of 86%. The Western Cape has recorded the highest number of deaths at just under 3,900, with Gauteng not far behind, reporting just under 3,600 deaths. Looking at the world, Latin America is the current epicenter of the pandemic, with the region accounting for almost half of all deaths each day. This has been fueled by a surge in COVID-19 deaths in Brazil, Mexico and several other countries in Central and South America. Europe's average count of coronavirus-related deaths overtook Asia's in early March, with Italy, Spain and the UK becoming the global hotspots. But from mid-April, the focus shifted to the US, where the number of deaths has remained consistently high. The chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, is encouraging citizens to get tested for COVID-19 as part of a mass testing drive. Lam is trying to overcome suspicions that the testing drive will be used to harvest people's DNA for monitoring purposes, reports Bloomberg. A French study has reported that obese and overweight individuals are at a high risk of suffering severe cases of COVID-19. Bloomberg reports that the research shows how extra body weight puts patients at a higher risk of serious illness and death. The study found that only one in every 10 people who end up in intensive care units with COVID-19 we're in the range of healthy weight. A new World Economic Forum global survey of nearly 20,000 adults indicates that 74% of us are willing to get a COVID-19 vaccine. But the World Economic Forum notes that the 26% shortfall is significant. Next, Biz News founder Alec Hogg speaks to Professor Lucille Bloomberg, one of South Africa's top specialists on infectious diseases. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Professor Lucille Bloomberg is with us and it's really good to talk to people who are on the inside 
of the whole pandemic. Professor, how are you reading things right now in South Africa? Most, most of the public are seeing, well, the worst seems to be over and uh, things are flattening out now and we're still wearing our masks and still washing and, and washing hands and keeping social distancing, but uh, no need to get any panic anymore. But from the inside, how are you seeing it? So the cases are coming down, both in the community and in patients who are being hospitalized. So I think we are seeing a, a downturn in the transmission. I think the, the concern is, you know, people do relax their preventative measures. And I think everyone's quite tired and needs a, a break from isolation and similar. So, you know, I think we do need to still continue to take measures to reduce transmission so that we don't have a research. You have a global reputation from a I'm not South... sure about that. Well, <laughs> you do. And from, from a South African perspective, do you feel that the scientists have been listened to? You know, I don't think I can answer a definite yes to that. There have been many, many scientists involved in the response uh, through various channels. And sometimes, especially with a new pathogen that's uh, emerged, I don't think we have all the answers, but you have to apply principles of uh, communicable disease prevention and control in the best way that you can with the boat sailing. I think that's been the feeling. We're building the ship as it, as it sails for, for many of the uh, interventions. But I, you know, I think it's, um, it's been an interesting experience. Uh, I think uh, many of the advisories are now being made public and uh, I think they haven't always agreed with uh, what has been put in place. Let's just go back a little bit, because we often learn from history. When the SARS virus hit in 2003, you would presumably have been quite involved in planning South Africa's response to that. Was there anything that happened then that has been able to be used now, 17 years later? So that was my first international outbreak. I started at the National Institute in Communicable Diseases in 2002. And I started in viral hemorrhagic fevers. And then SARS came along and we just took that on in terms of putting in place a response and laboratory testing and management of suspected cases. It was a, an amazing learning experience and an incredibly busy time. So we didn't actually have a confirmed case, although there was one highly suspected case. But a lot of what was put in place there in terms of, of an outbreak response has, has been carried through to many other outbreaks. And I think I've been involved in well over 200 in the last 18 years. So I think the principles are there. The activities are very similar. And I think we, we learned a lot. It was the, the very first big global emerging pathogen that most of us had to deal with. So lots of lessons learned, and many are still being applied today. 200 outbreaks. We, we, oh, my we, goodness. The public, we, we, we're, we live in ignorance, and not well, so much about corona. Small. <laughs> some are small, and I guess this is the third pandemic. Yeah, we learn something every time, something new, and you think, well, why didn't we know this before or do it before? Previous pandemics? Well, the avian influenza, not avian influenza, influenza A, H1N1, in, in 2010 was a pandemic. There was the SARS and 
trying to think. And now this one. Mm. And and that H1N1, or what do they call it? Bird flu? Swine flu, actually, Swine flu. Uh-huh. which is a complete misnomer. But really nothing to do with, with pigs. And that name is stuck, unfortunately. How was that handled in South Africa? Well, I think we did pretty well. We didn't have any conferences. A lot of surveillance, set up a national network of surveillance, a reporting system, which was, I think the reporting was was to one person, that was me, the phone that never stopped going. We had, I remember, 145 or something suspected cases to review. Most really did not conform with what we used as a case definition to test. We had to set up new tests that uh, had to be very rapidly um, put in place. It was new pathogen. don't always know what you're dealing with. And I think we did pretty well. I think in the end, we tested very few patients, traveled to affected areas quite quickly, reduced their the risks of importation. But if you look at what happened in some countries like Canada, you know, they had imported cases, didn't recognize them, and there was rapid transmission within hospital facilities and quite a large outbreak affecting patients and staff. So I think we, we did very well. Perhaps we were lucky. With luck favors the prepared sometimes, but it was a big learning curve. And I must pay tribute to the unit that I was in. You know, they dealt with viral hemorrhagic fevers for a very long time, and they were able to put in place the, the laboratory testing very quickly, which I think really was a, a major support for, you know, dealing with suspected cases and excluding them. We hear so much from the scientists that we've had this coronavirus outbreak. It's not going to be the last one. We need to prepare ourselves for the next one whenever that may arise. Has there been a lot that you have learned from handling this pandemic? We have to learn. And I think, you know, every time there's a a major outbreak or a pandemic, there's lots of activity about improving monitoring programs and surveillance and upskilling labs and ensuring infection prevention control, training and materials are shared. And then, you know, the the outbreak goes or the pandemic goes and sometimes things are are not carried forward. This is the the biggest one that I think the world has had to deal with in, in the modern age. And hopefully we will learn and there will be some things left behind that will improve surveillance so that we monitor better. We have systems to respond quicker and that we have strong infection prevention control in our health facilities. That's a major issue. If you look at SARS-1, if you look at Ebola, although that's not an issue here, if you look at SARS-2, which is the uh, COVID-19, infection prevention control is something that's absolutely critical. We must strengthen that in, in all our health facilities. It's been interesting, again, as an amateur observer, that I haven't met too many people who've had flu this year. We're all wearing ah. masks and we're doing, we're doing yes. maybe what we should have done a long time ago. Yes, so you're absolutely right. In the build-up to the winter, we were quite anxious. We thought, gosh, we're going to cope with COVID. And it's going to be at the time of the influenza season, which is classically the end of May to end of August, beginning of September. And hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. So I think there was quite a rush on flu vaccine, although we don't really have enough in this country to go around to all those who need it. But I think a lot more people actually were vaccinated than usual. And uh, I think all the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the distancing, the hand washing, the wearing of masks are all uh, critically important for reducing flu transmission and then closing of schools. 
school children are important in flu transmission to adults, less so for, for COVID-19. So we saw almost no influenza. And we have quite a good uh, monitoring system. I don't think it performed as well as previously. People didn't go and seek care. They kept away from doctors. So it really did affect our surveillance. But overall, almost no influenza. Extraordinary. Professor Bloomberg, what is interesting as well when you look back to pre-COVID, those of us who live in the Western world often were bemused at the way that Asians wore masks. You'd see them on aeroplanes with masks, people from China or Japan or Hmm. elsewhere. Is this now likely to be something that we do throughout the world, given the experience with COVID-19? Well, you know, wearing masks is definitely something that's practiced in Southeast Asia, as as you say, it's acceptable. It's what people do, and they do it to try and reduce their the, the risks of them passing on the infection. Cloth masks, which is what the general public would wear, surgical masks are really reserved for for health workers, stop infection going out. So I protect you, you protect me. They don't really reduce virus coming in. But if everyone wears a mask, you know particularly asymptomatic people who may be infected and don't know about it, they will work. So it took quite some while for, um, you know, even the WHO to accept that this was a, a worthwhile intervention. And South Africa actually went ahead. And I was one of the group, uh, wasn't there at the beginning, but I joined the Masketeers in promoting this. And eventually this was adopted and made compulsory, so to speak. But, you know, wearing a mask properly and wearing a mask are not the same thing. And walk around and you'll see masks around the neck. You'll see them on the forehead. You'll see them below the nose. Um, so many people are kind of trying to follow the regulations and not get fined or caught out or whatever. But they're not wearing the masks properly. So, you know, if you want to work, stop infecting other people. You need to, to follow the instructions for proper wearing. And I think. Yes, um, I think a lot more people will wear them. Some people complain, you know, they're not comfortable. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's important that we do take that forward for respiratory infections. As we look ahead, the two issues that I'd, I'd, I'd like some insight from you, please, before we close off. The one is, how long are we going to, or is it likely that we're going to continue with these non-pharmaceutical interventions? And the second one is when might we be able to travel internationally again? So hand washing, which is one of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, good hygiene and uh, mask wearing, I think is important to, to take forward for other respiratory infections. But I think people get tired and, uh, you know, I think they're already starting to uh, move away from many of these, but they're incredibly important. The one that you don't mention is, in fact, ventilation. And wearing of masks and hand washing is only part of it, but good ventilation, open doors, open windows, very, very important for reducing transmission. So difficult to, to say, you know, I think compliance will drop off as summer comes and numbers go down, but I think we need to encourage them. You know, we have lots of TB, and we have uh, flu during the season, lots of other respiratory infections. We have lots of infectious diseases, hand washing, uh, particularly for enteric gastroenteritis, you know, diarrheal type illness, very, very important. So the second question is much harder. Going forward, what's going to happen? 
I don't know. We may see a resurgence of quite a lot of people who have been infected and have short-term immunity. So I think COVID is going to be with us for a while until we get a good vaccine. And I think the relaxation of international travel is going to really depend on, you know, what the world will be seeing in the next few weeks or months in terms of resurgence. As somebody said, it was both a PR and a political issue. People are scared to travel. They don't want to be caught in lockdowns. They don't want to be caught in quarantines on their return. You've seen what's happened in the UK. And I, I can't really answer that. I think what is important is that we open up our economy, hospitality and restaurant businesses have really been struggling and, you know, we need to support them. International travel is very important for our economy. And I think we'll have to wait and see, you know, what happens internationally in terms of resurgence and what happens locally so that people feel confident and safe that it's it's okay to go. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Recently, Sweden won praise from the World Health Organization for its unusual approach to battling coronavirus. The Nordic nation imposed far fewer restrictions on movement than any other country and instead relied on Swedes to act responsibly and embrace the guidelines laid out by the country's health authorities. But the strategy has been controversial. Sweden's COVID-19 death rate is considerably higher than many other countries, at 57 per 100,000 people. But the pace of new infections and deaths has slowed markedly since the end of June. Stockholm-based reporter Nicholas Rolander explains where the country has gone right and wrong. And now for today's main story. Recently, Sweden won praise from one of the World Health Organization's six special envoys on COVID-19, Dr. David Navarro. Navarro said the key to a sustainable coronavirus strategy is trust and highlighted Sweden as a case in point. The Nordic nation imposed far fewer restrictions on movement than other countries and instead relied on Swedes to act responsibly and embrace the guidelines laid out by the country's health authorities. But the country's strategy has been controversial. Sweden's COVID-19 death rate is considerably higher than in many other countries, at 57 per 100,000 people. But the pace of new infections and deaths has slowed markedly since the end of June. I talked to Stockholm-based reporter Niklas Rolander about how the strategy was devised and where the country has gone right and wrong in fighting the virus. What has been Sweden's strategy to battle COVID-19 since March? The strategy has been uh, based on mainly on voluntary measures from from the public. So uh, Sweden has taken some legal decisions, such as to ban public gatherings of more than 50 people, but it has largely avoided more stringent lockdowns than that many other countries have imposed. And instead, it's urged its citizens to take responsibility themselves keep a distance, to work from home if they can, and to stay home if they have any symptoms uh, of uh, COVID. 
Schools have remained open largely. Uh, shops have been open. Restaurants have been open with some restrictions when it comes to how many people they let in and the distances between uh, patrons. And the argument has been that these more loose uh, restrictions are more sustainable in the long run than a lockdown where everyone is forced to stay at home. But Sweden has uh, always made the argument that this is something that we'll have to live with for a long time. And therefore, it's better to have measures that are sustainable, that it, that are possible to keep going for uh, for a long time. So what have been some of the major criticisms of Sweden's strategy? I think domestically, the critics have focused a lot on the death rates, which are at the moment about 10 times higher than in Norway, five times higher than in Denmark. So it's uh, from that perspective, there is uh, definitely a cause for concern uh, about what what Sweden's strategy has meant for uh, death rates. Critics also say that Sweden could have bought valuable time uh, earlier in the pandemic by adopting stricter measures to learn more about how the virus behaves and develop better methods for treatment that could have saved lives uh, if we had just delayed some of the transmission we had early on. There's also the claim that uh, Swedish public health experts have underestimated the role that asymptomatic spread has played in the transmission of the disease. Uh, and that has underpinned some of the decisions that Sweden has made. Now, I'm interested, by keeping schools open, many businesses open, what has been perhaps the impact of this strategy on Sweden's economy? The impact has been slightly less bad than uh, comparable countries. It's not a huge difference, though. We still have pretty uh, uh, historic drop in GDP. And Sweden's economy is very reliant on uh, exports. So, so no matter how how much better we're doing in the domestic economy, we will be hurt by by a decrease in, the, in international demand. So it may not have been uh, uh, as as different as you might think it would would be uh, from from other countries, but still slightly less affected than than other countries. You know, looking to the last few months, say the summer months. There has been seemingly some good news coming out of Sweden with lower daily death rates or lower reports of new cases. Does this perhaps account for changing global opinion about whether or not Sweden had the correct strategy all along? Uh, definitely that's contributed. Uh, I think there's probably two factors behind that. One is that we've seen a rapid decrease in Transmission, number of cases, number of cases in ICU, uh, and the number of deaths as well. Uh, at the same time, I think people are obviously looking at Sweden for uh, clues on how to approach this pandemic more long term. 
And that's also the case that's been made by, for example, WHO uh, experts that uh, after this phase of uh, very strict lockdowns that may or may not may not have been necessary in the early phases of the pandemic to really stem the transmission, you now need to look at something that's uh, more sustainable that's that you can hold on to for a longer period of time, and that's always been Sweden's uh, approach. So. Uh, Sweden is more likely to be seen as a model at this stage of the pandemic than uh, it was before. You know, taking a a long look at Sweden's strategy over the last six months or even longer, there has always been this question of whether the intent behind this policy was to achieve herd immunity. Do you think this was part of the strategy overall, or do you think that there's much more broader factors at play? I mean, if you listen to the public health experts in Sweden, they have consistently denied that herd immunity was the aim of the strategy. They have said, while it may be the case that Sweden's strategy will lead to bigger transmission and therefore more immunity, that has never been the primary target. I mean, some critics have questioned that and called it a stealth strategy, but the official line is that herd immunity is not part of the strategy. And after a few months into the pandemic, I think it it was clear to public health experts here as well that this virus wasn't really behaving in the way that previous uh, similar viruses have. So the idea that the virus would be spreading widely throughout society and that a large portion of the population would be infected within a reasonably short period of time wasn't really how this panned out. Instead, it's been more about very local outbreaks and so-called cluster transmission, which makes it much harder to reach that level of immunity in the population. And so recently, public health experts here have um, have stressed that we don't have the levels of immunity that protects us from uh, further outbreaks. Now that we're looking to the end of summer and oncoming flu season, the start of the new school year, how is Sweden looking ahead to, say, the fall or winter um, with with these elements kind of on the horizon? I think just as uh, in the rest of the world, we're looking forward with some trepidation. Uh, I mean, the situation right now looks pretty positive, but you shouldn't forget also that we have we still have more cases than in many other countries that had more strict lockdowns and there will be uh, local outbreaks. So uh, we'll see what happens during the fall uh, and the public health authorities will publish their report on new guidelines for the fall uh, this week. Uh, And there may be some uh, reconsidering of uh, things like face masks, which uh, Swedish public health agency has been very skeptical of so far and have said that there may be a case for advising the use of face masks in some situations 
where it's uh, hard or impossible to keep a proper distance. Next, the Wall Street Journal's Africa Bureau Chief Joe Parkinson in Johannesburg says that inconsistencies in testing are hampering efforts to determine the scope of the coronavirus impact in Africa. Turning to Africa, determining just how hard the economy and public health have been hit is proving difficult to quantify. Our Africa Bureau Chief Joe Parkinson has been looking at the numbers. Joe joins us now. Joe, we're glad you're here. Great to be here. Thanks, Mark. Joe, as far as the scope of the pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa, is there an accurate picture as to what the region is facing? The short answer to that question is no. We sort of uh, tried to dig into the data to get a sense of exactly how much testing had been done across the continent. You know, when you look at the numbers, the infection levels uh, across Africa have been mercifully low in comparison to Europe and the U.S., the death rate has also been much, much lower, not just as an absolute, but as a percentage. Those are both very, very encouraging trends. But when you actually look at how many people have been tested and the efforts that a lot of African nations have taken to broaden testing, you understand that actually we have a very, very, very incomplete picture. One of the most striking data points in the story is that the entirety of sub-Saharan Africa, that's 46 nations with 1 billion people, just over 1 billion people of population, have done less tests together than the state of New York. And the majority of those tests have just been done by a few countries that have really made you know, pretty heroic steps to expand and broaden testing. So when you're looking at the full picture across sub-Saharan Africa, the reality is that we just don't know the extent of, uh, of the virus. And that's going to make it very, very difficult for African economies as they start to open up, as they start to try and attract foreign investment and tourists and travel. When people don't really know what the situation is there, it's going to be very difficult for governments and businesses businesses to sanction people and companies to go back into these places. And that's what a lot of international agencies, the World Health Organization and the NGOs that are operating in these places are really worried about and are trying to sound the alarm. They want more testing and fast. Joe, as far as the lack of testing, is this because of a lack of resources or perhaps even a lack of political will? It's both, but it's, it also depends on the country. I mean, there are nations, you know, on the continent that for whom coronavirus is just one other data point of the troubles that they're facing. Countries that are facing civil wars in Somalia, insurgencies in Nigeria and across the Sahel. It's very, very difficult for government entities or the military to even access some of the territory inside their nations because of this insecurity. So the idea of testing is perhaps too much to expect, but it just contributes to this vacuum of information. On the other hand, there are countries that seem to be actively wanting to suppress data, suppress information. In the case of Tanzania, they've stopped sharing their data uh, with the World Health Organization, the government of Equatorial Guinea, President Obiang, who is the continent's longest serving leader, been in power for nearly 40 years. He has also expelled World Health Organization representatives. In other countries, they're saying that testing is rationed or complaining that they can't ramp up testing quickly enough. But that's very curious for the international agencies who are trying to aid these countries to do so. Overall, it does seem to be a mixed picture, but where 
the coronavirus is potentially very politically damaging for the governments involved, there does seem to be an effort to very much control the message. And perhaps there's even, you know, a political imperative in reducing testing, because the less tests you have, the less of a problem with coronavirus you appear to have on the surface. Are there any areas where accurate testing is taking place to get a true picture of where things stand? Yes, there are a number of governments that have done, you know, amazing things with limited resources and limited state capacity. It's just three or four governments that account for, you know, almost three quarters of the entire tests across sub-Saharan Africa. Um, in South Africa, particularly, we've had over a million tests now. And, you know, this unfortunately contributes in some sense where leaders are damned if they do and damned if they don't. South Africa have moved mountains to really, really expand their testing program. And as a result, what we see is that the uh, total infections across the country are very high. At certain points, they've been a fourth or the fifth, fifth highest in the world. But at least the government, at least the society and the citizenry, uh, and at least businesses, when they're looking to invest again, know what they're facing in that country. It's the same in Ghana. It's the same in Senegal. Um, it's the same to a lesser extent in, in, in other countries like Ethiopia. But overall, because these countries are so interconnected and because these borders across Africa are very, very porous, one country not testing or one country even in trying to cover up, you know, the extent of the coronavirus infections can be big problems for all of its neighbors, no matter how good a job they're doing. And Joe, as our bureau chief, where does your curiosity take you looking ahead? I think from our perspective, what we're really looking for is where is the economic recovery going to come from? The situation with the coronavirus in Africa has lagged the rest of the world. The number of infections has risen more slowly. We're still deep into lockdowns in much of the continent, whereas, you know, Europe and America to a lesser extent have started to open up. Now, although Africa is behind the curve in infections, it's very much ahead of the curve in terms of the economic impact. These are not countries that can afford big stimulus packages to cushion their populations. These are not countries that have a lot of spare capacity financially and economically. And the World Bank and the IMF are predicting one of the worst recessions on record that's going to push millions of people, not just into poverty, but into hunger. So I think what we're really looking at and what we're looking for answers on is what do African economies need to do? What do the countries need to do? to begin to reopen in a safe and sustainable way where they can attract investment and where they're not going to be locked into a cycle potentially of lockdown and opening and lockdown and opening, because that could be so damaging for millions of people. Joe Parkinson joining us from South Africa. Joe, thanks for making time for us this morning. Thanks very much. And that brings to a close the Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time.